The uh, children, uh, preschool ages through second grade, can be dismissed for Children's Church at this point. For the rest of us, uh, open your Bibles to Romans 11, and we are going to cover today the uh, what is really the culmination of the argument that has been uh, chapters 9 and 10 and 11. <clears throat> so I've, I sense a great uh, weight in the sense that uh, I'm not going to be able to give it justice. Um, this is the, the conclusion of the argument. This is wrapping things up. This is the pinnacle. This is, this is kind of the punchline. And uh, I just, uh, just don't feel like I'm going to be able to communicate everything that's intended here today. And so um, we will trust the Lord's favor and uh, blessing in that regard. We're going to be reading verses 25 down through 32. Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded in this passage that you are over all. That you are not involved in a portion of what goes on in our lives. You are not relegated to some corner of reality that we call religion. That you are not limited. You are not controlled that you are over all, our God, our Creator. And as we look at the course of redemptive history in broad strokes today, we praise you that you have brought salvation to us. We praise you that you have worked in the ways that you have, Ways we would not have chosen. Ways we would not have guessed. And yet you have been at work and you have brought redemption to us, to our families, to our hearts. That we have been reconciled to you. That we've been brought into peace with God. Because of these things we will talk about today. Father, we confess our sin before we move into this discussion, our time in your word, we confess that we have not loved you with all of our capacity this week. We confess that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves this week. We confess that as sin. And we praise you and thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ for that sin. We ask that you would make that known to us today, that we would rejoice in the fact that we get to be called your children. We get to be in right relationship with you despite not deserving it. So we praise you for this salvation. We praise you for the forgiveness that's ours in Christ. 
We praise you that you've given us your word. We praise, that, praise you that you have been at work in all of history bringing these things to pass. And we ask, Father, that as we turn to your word this morning, you would be at work in our hearts, in our minds, that we would receive from your word, by your spirit, what you have for us today. We long to hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, it's a uh, difficult task. It's a big task uh, that we have this morning. And though it's tempting for me to go on for a couple of hours trying to uh, wrap things together, that I would be the last one in here by myself doing that. Probably the camera would die before I was able to finish that. But we will do our best uh, today. But um, we've called the message today the mystery of mercy. The mystery of mercy. And I love a good mystery. And probably um, you do too. They are very interesting. They catch your attention. They make, <clears throat> they make you want to uh, maybe figure out what's going on, guess how it's going to end. But I'm not really the kind of person who cares to really guess how it's going to end. In fact, I annoy my family quite a bit by shushing them and telling them, just let the storyteller tell the story. I don't want to hear your guess before it happens, whether you're right or wrong. It doesn't bother me to to hang in there until I find the ending. But I do love a good mystery. And uh, there's an entire genre of crime stories that's about unsolved mysteries. Those things that happened, crimes that happened, and we don't know the answer. We've got all kinds of facts. We've got all kinds of information, but we don't know uh, what happened. We just can't figure it out. No one can understand it. Well, that kind of mystery is intriguing. That kind of mystery catches our attention, and it makes us want to dig more into it. But when the Bible uses the word mystery, it uses the word mystery in a different way. It's a pretty common word, uh, not entirely uncommon. Paul uses it quite a bit in uh, most of the usages actually in the New Testament. Uh, But when you read about mystery in the Bible, it's not the notion that uh, the subject is so complex you can't figure it out, or we don't have all of the information. Uh, It's unsolvable, like these uh, uh, true crimes that have not been solved. It's not like that. It's not that it's unknowable. It's not that it's so complex that it's virtually unknowable. When the Bible talks about mystery, it has a specific meaning in mind. In the biblical concept, a mystery is something that was concealed in the Old Testament, but has now been revealed in the New Testament. And a great example of that, probably uh, one of the clearest examples, is in Romans chapter 16, the only other time Paul uses mystery in the book of Romans. 16 verses 25 and 26, Paul speaks of the preaching of the gospel, and this is what he says. He speaks of the preaching of the gospel according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. It was kept secret for long ages. There, there were hints and there were, there were tastes and there were ideas, but it was, it was kind of a secret, whether entirely or largely or mostly in the Old Testament. But now in the New Testament, it's been revealed. It's been made known. And it's a surprise because we didn't expect it from the Old Testament. That's what the idea of mystery carries in the Bible. And at the end of Romans 11, in our passage today, Paul uses that word, mystery, something kept secret in the Old Testament but now revealed in the New Testament, when he's talking about the gospel and how it interacts with redemptive history. He's been talking in chapter 11 and indeed in chapter 10 and in chapter 9, he's been talking about this grand course that the gospel has taken where there's an interplay between Jew and Gentile and how do those things work and how is God working those things together and he calls that a mystery. And so we want to look at that mystery today. What is this mystery? Well, the mystery is God's unforeseen way to save Israel. Look at verses 25 and 
the beginning of 26, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. He uses that word mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. You see, initially, Israel is partially hardened. Israel is partially hardened. The the Jewish nation anticipated a future when they would receive the full benefits of their relationship with God, where they would receive the full benefits and blessings of salvation. They were, after all, God's chosen people, and so they had this expectation of what they're going to receive. And so Paul, at the end of this uh, first section here, actually quotes from several different verses in Isaiah that kind of lay out what their expectation was. And here's their expectation in verse 26. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. They had the expectation there would be a deliverer who would come. He would deliver them. He would banish ungodliness from, from their midst. He would take away their sins. They expected that they would have this blessing, this full reception of the blessings and the promises of God as God's chosen people. That's what they had come to expect. But here's the mystery. Because remember, Paul called this a mystery. Here's the mystery is that though that's what they expected... Yet Israel has received a partial hardening to this point. They hadn't been aware in their reading of the Old Testament that there would be a partial hardening to come upon Israel, that there would be a cool reception, a cold reception, even a rejection of the gospel when the gospel came. That the people of Israel would would be standoffish for the most part. Not entirely. Paul himself is an exception to that. He himself is a a Jewish man who is a believer in Christ. But they expected they would, when the Deliverer came, that they would have great abundance of blessing. It would be theirs. And instead, the Deliverer came and what, what they received was a hardening. There's a distance. There's a lack of reception of the gospel. Paul, in all of his travels, in all of his ministry, he saw so few Jews come to Christ. He would preach, and a few would believe, and then there would be a hardening. There would be a distancing, and and he would go and he would preach to the Gentiles instead. And that experience of his, that observation from his own ministry, is is what causes him to make his argument that he does in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He's he's observing and, and dwelling on the fact and thinking theologically about the fact that I go and preach the gospel and... For the most part, Jews reject it, and Gentiles are more likely to receive it. What am I to make of this? Has God broken His promises? Has God's Word failed? Well, that question is what causes Paul to go into his discussion in chapter 9, 10, and 11 that comes to a culmination in our part here. And what he starts off by reiterating is that there is a, a partial hardening that's come upon Israel. There's a hardening of the heart against the gospel. There's an unwillingness to, to accept the gospel. There's a distance. There's a, a rejection of that gospel message. There's actually a rejection of those very blessings that they had come to expect. Israel has been partially hardened, and that's a mystery. Looking from the Old Testament, they didn't expect that. They didn't see that that was going to come. But he says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Meaning this hardening will continue until the Gentiles are fully included. This is another part of that mystery. That there would be a a setting aside, there would be a hardening of Israel while the Gentiles are piling into the kingdom. It was unexpected, but Paul's been reflecting on it all through chapter 11. He's already said through their trespass, through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. 
He says their trespass, Israel's trespass, means riches for the world, and their failure means riches for the Gentiles. He says their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. So he's he's observing what is happening, and he's saying, actually, there's something larger going on. It's not it's not just something happening within the nation of Israel. It's not just something uh, amongst the Jews, but there's a, a larger picture that Paul wants to look at when he's examining and thinking through this difficulty that, that for him, remember, was very painful. We said back at the beginning of chapter 9 that he heads into this topic of, of, of salvation and, and even damnation and how those things relate. He heads into it with tears in his eyes, thinking about his fellow Jews. He cares about this. This is important to him, and it has brought him to this point. And he says, there's been a hardening brought to Israel that has resulted in a greater inclusion of the Gentiles. That God in his sovereign wisdom has has partially hardened Israel so that the gospel and salvation would go to the Gentile world and that they, the Gentiles, would receive salvation. It seems like Paul is saying here that the majority of gospel success will continue to be amongst the Gentiles and not amongst the Jews for the time being. That will continue, he says, with minimal conversions amongst the Jews until such a time as the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? What does that mean? He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I'm not certain what that means. I have ideas of of what that means, but it's difficult to understand. And and pastors and scholars wrestle with exactly what this means. And I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it refers to that time when the full number of the Gentiles appointed to salvation have been saved. That that's the fullness of the Gentiles. That that's the full number who will be saved has been saved. And In other words, what I believe this is saying is that there's been a, a, a hardening of, of Israel until such time as salvation has fully come to the Gentiles. I think that's what's going on here. And then once that happens, all Israel will be saved. Look how he concludes, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. I'll recognize right off the bat, this is difficult stuff. This is hard for me to get my mind around when I think through what he's been arguing in 9, 10, and 11, when I think through the direction he's been going and many of the things he said in Romans, this great culmination of his argument has to do with the future. It has to do with what we call eschatology, the end times, what, what God is going to do in the future to bring things to a culmination But when he says there's a partial hardening upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and in this way all Israel will be saved, I think he's explaining for us how God has worked the two major people groups or the ways we could divide mankind, Jew and Gentile, and that means everyone. the ever-increasing success of the gospel amongst the Gentiles is intended to cause a jealousy amongst the Jews. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. It's going to the Jews as well, but it's primarily being rejected. But then it goes to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are pouring into the kingdom in great numbers, which is intended, as we saw in chapter 11, earlier in in our chapter, we saw that the intent of that is to cause a jealousy amongst the Jews that they would look and see, wait a minute, that's our God. That's our God receiving... the, the, the These Gentiles are receiving the blessings that were intended for us, that were promised to us, that we had come to expect. These are ours. And those blessings are going to the Gentiles. That's not right. 
I want some of that too. I want into that too. I want to be involved. I want to be plugged in. I want to receive that. So there's a, a jealousy that is to be developed. It's to grow up in the heart of the Jews when they see all of these Gentiles receiving their salvation. That this would cause them to want to be involved also. Paul has said several times throughout Romans chapter 11, this jealousy is intentional. God's doing this on purpose. And Paul says, actually, he himself does it on purpose. He says, he says I'm a, an apostle to the Gentiles, and I magnify my ministry in order to pique this jealousy amongst the Jews that they would want to be involved, that they would want to come in. He says here, all Israel will be saved. When that time comes, when the full number of the Gentiles has come in, when, the, when the, the, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, in that time, all Israel will be saved. Now there's a lot of discussion on uh, what this means. And there is, uh, it could take us into a lot of eschatology and a lot of different debates that I don't, I don't feel adequate to jump into. And I certainly don't want to drag you through. So I'll just tell you what I think this means. When it says all Israel will be saved, I don't believe that means every single Israelite alive at that time. I don't think that means every single Jew will be saved when he says all Israel will be saved. And here's, here's why I think that. And you've got to bear with me a little bit. It's, it's tracing words through the passage, and, and I'll try to get to the point quickly. I don't believe that means every single Jewish person alive at that time will be saved because of what he said back in chapter 11 and verse 12. He said, now in their, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Most of our versions translate that as full inclusion, but the word is fullness. It's fullness. It's the same word. To refer to Israel. So he's, he's saying earlier, earlier in his argument, he's talking about the, <clears throat> Israel's rejection, Israel's trespass, Israel's failure means riches for the Gentiles. And if that's the case, how much more will their fullness mean? Well, that's the same word that he uses when he's talking about, in verse 25, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. I think he's talking about the full number. He's talking about the largest portion that we could say of the Gentiles, they have been evangelized. And then we can say at this point of the Jews, they have been evangelized, successfully so. There's been a mass involvement, a mass belief by the Jews that they have turned to Christ. And so I think that's what's going on here. Is he's saying, if we go back to our illustration from earlier in chapter 11, Remember, he had the illustration of the tree and the branches. We talked about grafting and, and all of that, that there's this, there, there's this tree that is the promises of God to his people. There were branches that were in that tree. Those branches were, were the Jews. And that some of those branches had been removed. Why? To make room for the insertion of branches from a wild olive tree, which, by the way, is you and me. The Gentiles. So there was a, a removal of branches and Gentiles were brought and they were, they were put into that tree. They were, they were tied into that tree so that now they have life in that tree. Well, that happens for a while, but what's going to happen with these branches that have been taken away? They can be plugged back in also. They can be grafted back into that tree. And so... It's as if God is working for a time focusing on Gentiles and, and the Jews have been temporarily hardened. And when God completes that work with the Gentiles, he will turn back to the Jews and bring salvation to the Jews in mass numbers so that you have a large number of branches that are the Gentiles that are now included in the tree receiving the promises and the blessings of God. And then you have a mass number of Jews being brought back into their own tree and plugged back in, grafted back into this tree and thus the recipients of God's promises. And so what Paul seems to be talking about here is how God has been at work in bringing salvation around the world 
in different ways to different people groups that in the end brings about a greater blessing, a fuller blessing than could have been imagined beforehand. That if you had written the plot for this, if you had decided how the gospel was going to go around the world, you, you would not have written it this way. And if you were reading through the Old Testament, if you were an Old Testament Jew and you were looking at what the future was going to be like for your people, you would think the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You would think there's blessing coming. There's blessing coming. God's going to send a Deliverer and it's going to be great. And God sent the Deliverer. And He was great. But the reception of him was not. He was actually rejected. He was actually cast aside. He was actually made to be the sacrifice. There was no acceptance of him, generally speaking. There was rejection of him, generally speaking. And he ends up being crucified. So it looks as if God's plan is failing. It looks as if things are going off the tracks. It looks as if things are going all wrong. But we know from the reflection going through uh, uh, what Paul has written in Romans so far and the rest of the New Testament, this was God's intention all along. That God sent his son as this deliverer. And his deliverance would be great, but it wouldn't come about in the way that it had been anticipated, the way it had been expected. But the end result, the Messiah is rejected, He's crucified. He's buried. The gospel of his resurrection, of his sacrifice, of salvation in him is proclaimed broadly to the Jew first and is largely rejected. And then it goes to the Gentile. And Gentiles pile in and there will come a time when the full number of Gentiles have piled in. And then that gospel will begin to explode amongst the Jews. And they will finally receive that deliverance that they had come to expect, that they had thought that would be theirs, but they hadn't foreseen the road that would lead to it. This is a mystery. This is a mystery. It's, it was God's plan, and as you look back from the New Testament, looking to the Old Testament, you can see that there are pieces of it there. But you, you wouldn't have put it together until Christ came on the scene, until the apostles come along and are able to understand it. So, this is, this is talking about God's wise, sovereign, saving, and self-glorifying work in bringing the gospel to the whole world. That God is bringing salvation to, to a people who reject it before he works and they accept it. And that's me. This is talking about Jew and Gentile. This is talking about massive, redemptive, historical, big, all of history. But this is me as well. That, that I didn't want him. That I rejected him. And God worked in ways that I couldn't have foreseen to bring the gospel to me and draw me to himself. That God has graciously worked in my life and he's graciously worked in your life. And you may be here this morning and, and you have rejected that gospel message for 30 years. You may have rejected that gospel message every time you've heard it, you've ignored it, you've not cared, you've, you've actively sought to argue against it. And my prayer is that as God has continued to bring that gospel back around in this Issue where he's bringing the gospel back around to a people who have rejected him for, for decades and centuries and millennia, that he would bring that gospel to you as well. That he would bring you to that place where, where you would receive those salvation blessings. Where you would bow the knee to him, that you would submit to him, that you would realize your own need for a Savior. And that you would trust in him. You would find in Jesus the full and complete payment for your sin and the full and complete righteousness required to stand before God. And that you would see that he died for your sins to pay the penalty for you 
and that you would trust Christ, that you would be included as well. This is the mystery that he's talking about here, how God has has worked in human history on the largest scale possible to bring about this gospel, this salvation. And it's mysterious, not in that it's complex. It's mysterious in that it was concealed in the Old Testament. It's not until you know the New Testament that you can look back and find evidence of it in the Old Testament because now it has been revealed. So having worked through the mystery of Israel's salvation, he gives us a word now on enmity and calling. Enmity and calling. Verses 28 and 29. As regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. Speaking to Gentiles primarily here. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They are enemies for your sake. They are enemies of the gospel for now, for your sake. So that their rejection results in the gospel going to you. Results in the gospel coming to me. I think of the, uh, we have missionaries of Moon and Gazala who were, uh, they're from a Middle Eastern country. They were living in a Middle Eastern country. And they were eventually driven out by persecution, by threat to their lives. And so here they were, ministers of the gospel, witnesses of Christ living in this Middle Eastern country. And that Middle Eastern country and various forces there ends up driving them out. That Middle Eastern country in this sense, in this story, becomes enemies of the gospel. Well, who benefited from that? Well, Moon and Gazala come to the States. They bring the gospel with them. They move to New Jersey. And they take the gospel everywhere they go. And they they share the gospel with anyone who will sit still for three minutes. The gospel has come to New York and New Jersey and that area in in large uh, uh, amounts because of the fact that this Middle Eastern country made themselves enemies of the gospel, drove them out, and Amun and Gazala bring the gospel with them. And so you have this situation where Paul says here, as regards the gospel, they are enemies. That... Paul preaches the gospel when he comes to a new town and and he finds that a few Jews will accept it and the majority reject. The majority don't want it. The majority run him out. That may take a week or that may take a couple of months, but that's what ends up happening. But they make themselves enemies of the gospel. So Paul laments that, but then he also makes this comment. He says they are enemies of the gospel for your sake. Because when they shut out the gospel, when they don't want it, when Paul is forced to leave the synagogue and go somewhere else, the gospel goes to you and to me. The gospel goes to Gentiles. And so he says, yes, they are enemies of the gospel, and it is for your sake. This is God's doing. This is God's intention. This is how God is bringing about salvation in these ways. They are enemies for your sake. But he says, because he's not done there, As regards the gospel, verse 28, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. They are beloved for their fathers' sakes. Though they are now the enemies of the gospel, they don't want to hear it. They want to run Paul out of town. They they stone him at times. They they, they attack him. They they want him gone. They don't want the gospel. They, They actually went after the Messiah who was their deliverer. They're currently enemies, yet they are beloved for their father's sakes. Their rejection is not the end of the story. Their present current rejection is not the end of the story. The the status of evangelism amongst Jews during Paul's day or evangelism amongst Jews in our day is not the end of the story. There were still promises made to their fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac, to Jacob. And so for their sakes, for the sake of Abraham, for the sake of Isaac, for the sake of Jacob, for the sake of their forefathers, God is not done with Israel. He will continue and he will fulfill his promises. When Paul had first started this discussion all the way back, months and months ago in chapter 9, in verse 4, this is what he says, They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, 
the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. God is not done. If we were to take a cross-section of human history during the time Paul is writing, it would look like God was done with the Jews. If we were to take a cross-section of history at our time, you might conclude, based upon the number of Gentiles in the church versus the number of Jews in the church, that God's basically done with Jews. And what Paul is saying is there is a larger picture. We dare not be deceived by what's going on in the present time, by what we can see in our day and age or even in our lifetime. There's a larger picture of what God is accomplishing in bringing salvation, even bringing salvation to the Jews. Because God remains faithful. God remains faithful. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God keeps His promises. His promises are often misunderstood by the people to whom He gives them, but He keeps them. He keeps His promises. There's an application for us here. We read in John, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe in Him? Do you trust in Him? Do do you realize about yourself that, that you yourself can't measure up? You don't have what it takes to meet God's standard. That you yourself are bankrupt. You, you can't make the cut. You require righteousness that you don't have in order to be right with God. You require a, a cleaning away of your sins, and you can't accomplish that. In order to be made right with God, you you must have Christ. He has that righteousness. He has given himself as that sacrifice that cleans away the guilt of that sin. Do you believe in Christ that way? Because we read in John, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That promise is made... And when we believe it, when we trust in Christ, we realize that it's true for us and we rejoice. I have salvation. I have, I'm not going to perish. I have eternal life. Sometimes the Christian life gets a little rocky. Sometimes I start demonstrating in ways I wish I wouldn't that I, I really am bankrupt. Even more so than I knew all those years ago. I really don't have what it takes. I still don't have what it takes. Is that promise still good? Is this promise still good? Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. His promise is still good. He keeps his promises. God remains faithful. And so to wrap up, Paul is talking about this mystery of mercy. Look how he continues. Verses 30 and following, he says, For just as you were, at one time disobedient, speaking to the Gentiles generally, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, because of Israel's disobedience, so they too, Israel, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. First is the Gentiles' disobedience. Think of the course of human history. Think of salvation history. God called Abraham, and not the guy who lived next door to Abraham. Not someone who lived around the world from Abraham. He called Abraham. He made promises to him. He established a relationship with him. And then Isaac. And then Jacob. God was focusing his work on a particular people. They're called a chosen people for a reason. God was working with Abraham. He was accomplishing his promises. He was making promises and he was fulfilling those. He was establishing relationship. Well, what about all of those apart from Abraham? The Gentiles. 
God wasn't working with them in the same way. He brought salvation to the Jews. He brought salvation to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to that line, to those people. Meanwhile, the rest of the population is excluded. They were disobedient, is the way he puts it here. Just as you were at one time disobedient, that's what he's talking about. Is this time when God was saving Abraham. We read through the Bible and we rejoice that God calls Abraham, that he makes these promises to him, that he begins to work with Abraham and his family, and we rejoice in this family tree that grows. Do we think about everybody else on the earth? Why was that? Why was God working in such a unique way with one family, with one person? Well, it's this mystery of mercy. While God was working with those people, everybody else was in disobedience. That's the Gentiles' disobedience while God is working with the nation of Israel and all the promises he's making and all of that. But we have, secondly, Israel's disobedience. Because you have this point when the gospel comes, when the Messiah, the Deliverer comes, the one who should bring all these blessings, and there's a rejection of him. There's a, an, actually a hardening of the Jews. Well, what happens? Well, now those who had been focused on, those who had been worked with and developed all these promises made and all the focus of the Old Testament, they have become the disobedient ones. By and large, there are exceptions. Paul's an exception. John's an exception, etc. But God is working primarily with these other people who had been stuck in disobedience until this point. He's working amongst the Gentiles. And it's, the, it's Israel's disobedience that causes that to happen. This is, this is profound. This helps us understand the workings of history. This helps us understand our, our own lives, or if, if not understand our lives, at least recognize that when I face difficulty in my life, That's not the whole story. I can face horrific difficulty in my life, and that's not the whole story. I can face hardship, disobedience, difficulty in relationship, and that's not the whole story. God's God's working in all of history. He's accomplishing larger purposes. And I can take comfort in what God is accomplishing because there was a time when the Gentiles were consigned to disobedience and God was working with Israel and we're now in a time when Israel is consigned to disobedience and God is working primarily with the Gentiles and we see that this is going to come to to culmination I believe in a great and broad evangelism and acceptance of Christ in both realms where you see this massive outpouring of faith in Christ when God has used the Gentiles disobedience to develop Israel, and now he's used Israel's disobedience to bring faith amongst the Gentiles, and he's going to use this faith amongst the Gentiles to draw by jealousy Israel back to obedience, back to faith to receive mercy. So we see that God uses surprising methods of mercy. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. That God God is doing things on a cosmic scale that, that if Paul had not told us this, we would not understand. We wouldn't see that God is really at work even in those situations where he starts off chapter 9 weeping, weeping over the fate of his fellow Jews and concluding by the end of chapter 11, God knows what he's doing. And what he is doing is bringing mercy in surprising, unexpected, unforeseen, and unimaginable ways. He's bringing mercy to us. So I warned you. <laughs> It's difficult to wrap all of this together. It's difficult to bring all this into our discussion in a reasonable time today and in a way that we can walk away believing and being transformed by what we read in these verses. But I want us to understand, first of all, God's 
sovereign hand that he has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. I don't believe uh, in any way that that means that everyone will be saved. Those who believe in a universalism, a universal salvation will say that that's what these verses, uh, that this verse, these words will indicate. I think he's summing up his argument where he's talked about God's working amongst these different people groups. And he just sums it up in a very short way where he can, he can refer to mercy being brought to all, meaning all categories, meaning both Jew and Gentile have received mercy. God is that sovereign. God is that big. And so a couple of points of application to try and wrap up this difficult passage. First, God is faithful to his promises even when it looks like that can't possibly be the case. When, when something happens in your life and you can point to God and say, you said you would do this, and that's not what's happening. Even when it looks like it can't be the case that God is faithful, God is faithful. And the fact that you can't see it, the fact that I can't see it, the fact that I can't wrap my mind around how God could be faithful and keep his promises to me in this particular circumstance doesn't mean he's not faithful to keep his promises to me in this circumstance. He will. He is faithful. He will keep his promises. And the fact that I can't comprehend it, the fact that I can't see how it could be, says more about me than it does about him. And so I can say, I don't get it. But you're faithful. I need you. I cling to you. I trust you. Because you're faithful, even if I can't see it. Secondly, even unbelief and disobedience are not beyond his capacity, his control, or his redemption. God is the one who has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. There is a depth of God's work, even in the course of this massive history of belief and unbelief and obedience and disobedience and where mercy resides and all of those things. This says God was doing that. Somehow God is the one who did that. There's nothing beyond his capacity, nothing beyond his control, and nothing beyond his redemption. There's a third point of application. The blessings that we enjoy are ours not because of our own doing or our own merit. He's, he's writing to uh, the Gentiles in the church. This church probably is primarily Gentile at this point in Rome. He's writing to the Gentiles and he's explaining to them and he says several times, I want you to know this so that you will not boast. So that you will realize that this salvation is poured out to the Gentiles, not because the Gentiles are great and the Jews are bad. That is not the message. This is God's sovereign outpouring of mercy and you happen to be the recipient. So praise God and don't boast in yourself. Rejoice in his mercy realizing that it is yours because God has freely given it. We enjoy those things. We enjoy those blessings of God because God has given them to us at this time for his own glory. And so rejoice in them and remember that they come to us at the expense of Christ himself. Jesus is the one who laid down his very life so that you and I could have those blessings. Where is there room in any of this for my boasting? Where is there room in any of this for me to be prideful? God has poured out mercy. He has done so in the past. He will do so in the future. He is sovereign over history working the, the course of all of human history and redemption to pour out mercy where he wills. And he will continue to do that. So how do we 
wrap all of this up? How do I bring this all to a conclusion? I'm not, I'm not real sure, except to point to God and see that He has been faithfully bringing about redemption and salvation in Christ for all of history. And He has brought it to us. He has brought this mercy, this salvation to us, and it's none of our doing. There is nothing in it for us to boast of. Our only boast is Jesus himself. And so I'm not sure how to wrap all this up, so I'll probably just pray and be done. This is all of, all of human history being wrapped up in these chapters, 9, 10, and 11, talking about how God is at work to bring salvation to you and to me, and he will do so in the future, keeping his promises, keeping his word, and saving sinners like you and me. So let's rejoice in him. And, and in your place in your life, you may be in a difficult spot. You may, you may face an impossible decision. You may face opposition like you can't understand. You may face pain and loss and hurt in your life. You may, you may face disaster. And you wonder, how could God possibly keep his word in this? How could God possibly remain faithful? How could God possibly bless me? How could he possibly give me mercy in this situation? Well, the answer is, I don't know, but he can, because he is faithful. He is sovereign, and he is good, even in that situation. Let's pray. Father, I feel inadequate to uh, this task and pray, Father, that you would take the words that we've said here and the topics that are enormous, that you would send us away with a greater confidence in you, a greater trust in you, even when we can't see how you could possibly work in a situation, that we would still trust in you, God who keeps his promises who is at work, able to work even in the disobedience and unbelief of sinners, orchestrating that to bring about greater salvation and greater glory for yourself and good for your people. May we trust in you that way. May we look to you in our practical circumstances that cause us pain, that keep us up at night, that, that make us weep or make us angry or, or make us despair, that instead we would look to Christ. Instead, we would look to your work in our lives, your work in all of history. And if you can orchestrate these things, if you can work these kind of wonders amongst entire people groups and in billions of people in the, in the course of thousands of years, if you can work on that scale... You can work in my situation. I pray that you would help me to trust in you that way. Help each of us to trust in you that way. You are good, and you are faithful, and you are merciful. And we rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have a family up front to pray with you. If you want to uh, come and, and pray with them, they would 